The psychedelic revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, change makers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur. Today I have with me Joseph Mays. Hey Joseph, thank you for being here. Hi Beth, thank you so much for having me. Great, so just a little bit of background. Joseph Mays received his master's in ethnobotany from the University of Kent upon researching responses to globalization by indigenous Yanesha of central Peru. After graduating with biology and anthropology degrees from Virginia Commonwealth University, he conducted an ethnobotanical survey in the Ecuadorian cloud forest and published a medicinal plant guide for the Hama Coeki Ecological Reserve. His conservation work emphasizes how cultural conditioning influences approaches to... Uh, <laughs> His conservation work emphasizes how cultural conditioning influences approaches to biocultural sustainability. Joseph is pro program director of Chakruna's Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative of the Americas, where he conducts research and builds connections with small indigenous communities throughout the Americas to support Chakruna's mission of increasing cultural reciprocity in the psychedelic space. Joseph, I wanted to bring you on and talk about this important work that's going on at Shakruna. Um, and there's a lot happening. It's just so exciting and interesting and kind of scary at the same time to see how fast everything's evolving in this space. But let's hear your story first. Um, what brought you onto the path of, um, you know, what you've studied and working for Shakruna? And I'm curious how your own work with the plant medicines played into your career path? Sure. If sure. at all. Thank, yeah, they definitely did. Um, thanks for getting through that bio. I think it's a, it's almost a vocal warm up on, on its own. Uh, a lot of tongue twisters. Um, I, I think it really comes from a love of nature. I think uh, primarily just um, I was raised in a military family my dad was in the navy so i moved like every three years uh and so sometimes i was homeschooled by my mom in like second grade and and there was a lot of kind of natural history involved in that those early educational experiences just studying plants and animals um studying like raising tadpoles into frogs and then studying like the different species of juniper outside on the street and looking and identifying them by their um, cones and berries and and just uh when i lived in scotland my mom had a big garden um we lived on a, a farm because a kind family let us stay in like their their farmhouse um so just having this love of of 
the environment and of nature, I think, which comes naturally to kids. Um, and just seeing the degradation of the environment and um, seeing all of the sad, tragic uh, history of human involvement, of recent human involvement, because that's not always been the, the relationship between human humanity and, and nature. Um, I think it's more of a sort of past couple centuries that it's really gone the way that it has but uh I came to that and and I think you know I'm an artist I wanted to be I wanted to go to art school but then I studied biology because my dad wanted me to do something practical <laughs> as we all know biologists make tons of money uh so uh I <laughs> I studied biology and then I had a professor for an anthropology class named Edward Absey and he did his field work with the Mazatec in Oaxaca and so um, he he talked about you know his initiation with the psilocybin and and um, it opened up it opened me up to something I was already sort of interested in from reading a few books like uh, Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby who's an anthropologist um, reading some eth ethnographic stuff but after I took that class I decided to double major or, or do, do a dual degree in anthropology and uh you know edward absey had a huge impact on me um he taught at a class called south american ethnography and that's when i really got exposed to more in-depth um work on on different indigenous cultures and and their relationships with nature w was always something that really struck me and and uh, you know, over the years, I've been working with plants. I was working my way through college at a nursery, a plant nursery. I was working in horticulture for a long time, landscaping, um, doing edible landscapes and native uh, landscaping. And when I went to graduate school for ethnobotany, I kind of, uh, I had been working in permaculture as well. So as you mentioned, I went to Ecuador. I was working at a, uh, I was doing a permaculture program part of the time I was there and learning about tropical food production and and growing food in a way that is harmonious with the environment using uh, utilizing like ecological succession and trying to create a self-sustaining uh, system that doesn't need external inputs like fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides because um, this is the way that indigenous agriculture works and uh, in graduate school there there was a school of anthropology and conservation but really they were like two divided groups because they had very different perspectives on how to deal with conservation because uh, traditionally or conventionally environmentalists and um, biological conservationists would uh, use this model called fortress conservation, which is just taking people away from an area and then closing it off and, and trying to preserve nature that way. And that's like how the national park system works. Um, that's how a lot of preserves and reserves work. But uh, in the anthropology world and the ethnobotany world, you, you actually find that uh, indigenous territories, indigenous land, community-owned forests, and locally managed forests have more biodiversity, more carbon storage, more uh, you know species richness. All the different markers of ecological well-being are are in greater abundance in those areas than they are in like national parks. And so pushing people off of the land is actually 
sort of counterproductive. Uh, it also just feeds into this idea that you can separate humans from nature. It's really not possible. There's no such thing as pristine, untouched wilderness. All of the forests that we see have been shaped by humans. And, and in even the Amazon rainforest, when Europeans arrived, they thought it's just wild jungle. But really, it's it, it's all been shaped by huge human civilizations that were there that practiced agroforestry, that used, you know, uh, different guilds of species that work together to create higher yields and that's how the that's how people survived because there was no no other option and and living in in close relationship with the with the land uh every everything around you is part of you know this this network that you have to be in tune with or else you won't survive so it's um it's been made clear to me that this pursuit is really uh it's one and the same, trying to conserve nature and trying to conserve indigenous cultures, trying to protect indigenous communities uh, has to be done in, in concert with, with concert to conserve nature. So uh, to conserve cultural diversity, you have to conserve biodiversity and vice versa, and you can't really separate the two. And so that's really what I feel like is, is at the core of, of what I do. And, and it's, it's all really can be summed up by a relationship. So ethnobotany is about the relationship between people and plants and, you know, anthropology and, and ecology is all about relationships as well. So ecology is the relationship between different organisms in an environment. So I think that's, that's the key. Wow, it's, it's beautiful, and this is um, such an important topic. I actually just interviewed Charles Charles Eisenstein oh, last week for this podcast, um, and there's just so many questions about, you know, the hopelessness in the world and the earth, and how are we going to get into this harmony and this balance in every which way, right? You know, it's like environmental, people, relationships, um, you know, all the systems, the the reciprocity. Um, then we get into, you know, the details of, you know, let's say the plant medicine space or the psychedelic space. I mean, we can go on and on. It feels like everything is sometimes in disharmony, right? And everything feels broken. Um, I tend to be an optimist and think that we're going in some sort of a right direction, um, you know, even though things feel very hard at times. But, you know, more and more people are having these discussions about this interconnection and this... Um, you know, this this concept of not being separated at all, right? We are all interconnected and this is a symbiotic relationship and this is the only way for anybody to survive. Um, and, you know, we've talked about this a lot in my summits about how this relationship with plant medicines, whether psychoactive or not really, or just all plants, all plants are medicine, mm-hmm. um, how it really is waking up hopefully a lot of people to question the way we have been doing things. Like even what you said, like permaculture versus, um, you know, large scale industrial agriculture. I mean, we can compare like the way it's been, the way it's hopefully going, which is essentially returning back to um, indigenous ways, right? On, on some level. So let's talk about um, the work that you're doing currently at Chakruna or, or anywhere in the plant medicine world. And, you know, Maybe we should call it earth medicines, right? Because it's much more than than plants. Sure. You know, there's a lot to talk about. But yeah, what is what has been going on for you in in that realm? Well, so much. Uh, and I think Charles is a great person to talk to about those things. Um, I've been inspired by his his work definitely. Um, 
it's like the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Uh, I think, yeah, when I, when I want to feed that optimistic, but very realistic, like, uh, sort of drive, it's a good place to go. Um, I think you really touched on it when you said like uh, interconnectivity. Um, and also I'd love that you mentioned that like psychoactive plants is not the only, only category that's important. And really, if you, if you're in the forest, like all, all plants are psychoactive and, and dietas don't just involve psychoactive plants that are that, you know, Western science has recognized as psychoactive and food is medicine as well as plants and fungi and, and, water and and uh i think that is like the lesson that a lot of people get from psychedelic experiences is this interconnectivity but uh because you know up until that experience maybe they've felt isolated and alienated from their environment from themselves from their family from uh you know all all of their life because that's kind of the way that our conditioning is meant to make us feel and it uh, facilitates the destruction of the environment, it facilitates exploitation, it facilitates extraction. Um, all those things are easier to do if you're completely alienated from the source of, from the resources that you're dependent on, from the food and the medicine that you're dependent on, from the people that you're dependent on. So uh, I think when when psychedelic experiences challenge that or, or um, break down that, that separation, people have this feeling and this sense of connection like really really profound and deep connection and they see the life and intelligence in plants and things that normally aren't considered thought thoughtful or intelligent but uh these and this stuff has all been being supported by you know empirical scientific studies looking at plant communication and and all these amazing things that go on that we used to think were exceptional to humans uh, and that's kind of what this animistic point of view that a lot of indigenous cultures have uh, also sort of says is that every everything is intelligent, everything has a consciousness that's communicating uh, at all times. And so if you're in tune with that, you know, that's going to be, that's going to inform all of your relationships and, and including the ones that you, your agricultural practices, all of, the, all of your operations and and uh i think for a lot of people um in the global north um there's really like you have that experience and then what do you do afterwards it's like well now i realize that this alienation um you know I, I, now i realize how the, my connection independent interdependence with all these things how do i act on that and like how does that affect my life now that i've been made aware of that um and of course, it's not going to do anything if you don't practice afterwards. Um, you know, there you have to do it daily. It's like recognizing that truth and, and experiencing it isn't something that just happens. And when you like decide that that's the way it is, it has to, it takes work and it, and it takes like constant work. And that's what reciprocity is as well. It's like reciprocity isn't about just give and take, you know, you do something for me, I do something for you. It's, it's about, um, in, in the Andean, uh, cultures that came up with this word, Aini, Quechua word that a lot of people translate as reciprocity. It doesn't really mean what a lot of people say that it means. It's, it's 
it's about this like constant imbalance. So it's not really about harmony in this kind of way that we think about it. It's like there's constant disharmony and imbalance in every moment. And your role as a human being that recognizes your position in this like system is to always try to correct that imbalance. And it takes constant work and it never finishes. And so it's like, um, that's kind of part of uh, the reciprocity initiative that we that we created at Chacruna. Um the indigenous reciprocity initiative of the americas it's it's uh an online resource primarily that that consists of 20 different indigenous organizations and um that they're spread out throughout north america um the united states mexico costa rica and then brazil colombia ecuador and peru and it's uh it's meant to facilitate um investment into into those communities and it's meant to be a pathway for reciprocity it's like you know um obviously the the uh the healing starts in your own life with yourself and with your immediate community but a lot of people want to give back to indigenous communities they want to give back to something greater that might contribute to conservation in some way that you can't do on your own and there are a lot of great options out there but i think there's something unique about the indigenous reciprocity initiative or erie is what we call it it's faster to say uh erie is is special because it's a model based on these principles that we've been talking about um it's it's directed by the communities that are it's supporting there's no authority above that's imposing anything on them so like all other funding uh, models pretty much in the NGO nonprofit space are are based around reporting and having certain deliverables and there are people that have to be satisfied at the end of the day who are not the communities on the ground um, in order for that funding to go forward they have to meet certain requirements that are set by um, people outside of the communities and so this results in, I mean, if you just look at the history of these interventions, they're, they're not usually sustainable and they usually are short-lived. They, they serve a certain purpose for people that are not there at all, or that, that have their own goals. And, uh, you know, the indigenous communities are still experiencing uh, the same or worse amount of, of poverty, of, of um, displacement, disempowerment. So we wanted to flip that and, and create something that was um, decolonized and, and and basically that means that the funds don't have any strings attached to them. There's no conditions on them. Uh, the network is is built on trust and, and these relationships have been built over over multiple years. Um, and each organization has their own structures of accountability that that are based on how the community decides to structure it. So community assembly, um, they have, you know, if they're doing like a reforestation project, for example, they will map, they will do the mapping themselves and decide where they want to focus on replanting. They'll also vote on the species of, of plants that they're going to focus on um, cultivating in a nursery. And it's all coordinated and controlled by those communities. And the funds are flexible so they can use them for anything they need. Fuel costs like food, water, medicine, transportation, uh, supplies they don't have to like 
send us a application or a report or something um, uh, and tell us how each dollar is going to be used and guarantee, you know, something. Uh, and it just, so far, it seems to be uh, the ideal situation. And, and it's also creating a much stronger foundation for something that's sustainable. And and um, I think that was the, the original goal was just to have an answer for that question of like, how do I act on this? this um, lesson that I've learned about interconnectivity and I want to do something about what I'm seeing uh, and I don't know what to do. I could donate to like a, a huge nonprofit or NGO um, or you could donate to, to Erie and, and uh, yeah, I think it feels like a, a pretty special niche in the, in the current um, psychedelic movement. Beautiful. Now this is this is great, and I I agree. It's like giving the money to the people actually on the ground doing the work versus organizations where it's going into a vortex and we don't really know how it's <laughs> where it's going and if it's actually making change. Now I'm curious. Um, is this uh, the funds that you're you're funding different communities? Is this mostly for um? I, I mean, how how is it affecting, let's say, sacred medicine, um, whether it's, you know, ayahuasca or peyote or um, I don't, you know, those are the two that come to mind the most that we've been hearing about um, potential sustainability issues and over harvesting. Um, are they going to reforestation of those particular plants or uh, all the other plants that are being affected by the over harvesting or the harvesting in general? Um, and then also... Um, you know, I want to ask a, a deeper question about how this affects all these other organizations and, and people out there who are, you know, serving this medicine and expanding and even companies going into these spaces. Um, you know, is this a model that is potentially going to be rolled out into, let's say, the private sector so that we can actually give back and bring everything hopefully you know, be in that reciprocity in this kind of in the whole psychedelic world, as I would call it. Um, but yeah, let's let's hear about the details. Like is what what sparked this is and, and also a deeper question. Is there really um, a sustainability issue with these plants? Because I've actually heard multiple uh, I've heard different stories. You know, mm -hmm. I've heard and, and the one thing, you know, I do my part. My one part is I work with a person who um, has a whole reforestation replanting initiative within his own region where it's like i know where my medicine comes from i know who's growing it i know who's taking care of it i know it's not being um unsustainably harvested yeah at least as far as i know um but yeah let's let's talk about that because there's sure. a lot of people curious yeah yeah uh i think there's a a few different a di like you said there are different perspectives on that um for just to answer your first question, um, each organization has their own goals, their own projects that they're involved, that they're they're doing the, on the ground. These grassroots um, community organizations. So some of them are focused on reforestation. Some of them are focused on like water security or land tenure. So, but they're all connected. So like the re the deforestation is a problem. Um, unfortunately, as many reforestation projects as there are the deforestation keeps happening at an increasing rate um and there won't be plant medicines if that happens it doesn't really matter if these reforestation efforts are focused on psychedelic plants or not mm -hmm. we need that 
biodiversity to sustain any sort of activity that we want to do. Uh, and so this, the goal of Erie is to be the most effective and impactful way to address biodiversity, sustaining biodiversity and conserving biological and cultural diversity. And that ultimately is what sustains the plant medicine industry. The, the healing art of, of using plant medicines is all sustained by that biodiversity. So in that sense, in an indirect way, it, it is. But for each group, there are there are some indigenous communities that don't really use psychedelic plants that are involved, but they're they're all uh, they're all contributing to that main goal. There are three three groups uh, in in southern United States and Mexico um, that we support in Erie um, partners with the uh, Wisharica Research uh, Center as well as hablemos de hikuri and hikuri is the wisharika word for peyote so um these are both wisharika directed uh or huichol they're also called um they so they're both working primarily on uh, on uh, issues around peyote creating like community plant nurseries that are are managed by indigenous people that are trying to replenish those but also just having like conversations with the different indigenous groups that use peyote and coming up with collective strategies and agreements on how to address the problem uh there's also a mazatec um a community association that we're we're funding um they haven't gotten their like organizational infrastructure together yet so they don't have a website uh but we'll be adding that to the to the eerie web website as soon as it's ready but they're working on on you know issues in the Mazatec community, and um, some of those are directly related to psilocybin mushrooms. But I think one of the important parts of of the Erie sort of message is that it's not about just targeting one plant and and thinking that that that's the best approach. Sometimes that is, but I think it's important to see that. Uh, if you're not, if you can't support like the basic needs of these communities who are living in, in greater poverty than any other demographic in the world, um, meanwhile, this extremely lucrative business is growing. Very wealthy people are visiting these same communities which don't have food and water, um, which are displaced and their land availability shrinks and shrinks. Uh, Unfortunately, it's just like it doesn't matter how well-intentioned people are. The the incentives of the system that they're working within will just lead to greater exploitation uh, at every chance that it has, and it it's really hard to to do anything about that without a systemic change. But uh, I think teaching people about this model and this these relationships will help better inform us um, and. I think it is, it's unfortunately, it's pretty much restricted to the private sector at the moment. I would love to see government, uh, governments can commit funds to, to Erie or something. Um, but at the moment, it's aimed at business leaders and, and, and investors in the psychedelic space, as well as individuals and, and just like everyone that can give whatever they, they can. All levels of support are, are welcome. Uh, this was aimed at, you know, people that have felt the benefits of psychedelic plants in their lives and wanted a way to give back. But it's also trying to create new new ways of, of engaging with reciprocity. So like a, a business could commit 
a certain percentage of profits to go to this or somebody can can commit a certain amount of their salary people do matching donations for their employees there's like all kinds of different ways that it could be integrated into a business model and i i think there are other great projects in business medicine conservation fund um there are a few other wonderful initiatives that are similar to erie and uh, i'm sure that there will be more coming i think erie has something special and unique about it but of course i i would love to see more and more reciprocity initiatives pop up this has come up a lot especially as this whole psychedelic you know industry i hate that word but i can't (laughs) there's not a better word but as it grows as there's venture capital going into it whether these are you know lab created psychedelics versus sacred plant medicines um it's all still interconnected right and it's come up so much around how are all these, you know, millions of dollars and venture capital and, you know, funds and, you know, new businesses popping up every day? How are they giving back and how are we going to get this right? Because, you know, to me, it's like if you're on one path, you're going to start opening up to the other path. And, you know, we've all seen the growth of, let's say, ayahuasca or psilocybin or, you know, even peyote used in um, other other ways and traditional, which I am I'm always a little surprised by, but it's happening, right? Yeah. And it's it's like, how do we start having these um, really important discussions around what is the truth of what's happening, you know, and, and what will happen? Um, you know, I recently was in Costa Rica with someone who's actually does very similar work as you. And she, she pointed out something very basic to me that I was like, oh, I, I never really gave that thought is, you know, when you're going and harvesting whatever it is, doesn't matter if it's ayahuasca or chakruna or another plant, doesn't, doesn't matter. The whole, um, the whole forest is affected. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like ayahuasca doesn't just grow in a straight line by itself in a large field, right? It's, (laughs) it's wrapped around, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other plants. So it's all interconnected. Um, you know, and I'm curious, this is a, a question that comes up for a lot of people, especially people who've been on this path for a really long time. And they, you know, there's this kind of air of like, oh, we should leave these plants alone and um, people need to stop doing this. And, mm. you know, like then we get in, you know, the Tim Ferriss wrote about this last year, you know, stop working with toad medicine mm. because it's being over harvested. You know, everything's running into the same problem. Yeah. You know, um, people who are combo facilitators with the frog swear, oh, no, but this this particular combo is definitely came from a sustainable practice where they don't hurt the frogs. I mean, I've heard that a thousand yeah. times. Um, but what are your views or even Chakruna's views, if you can speak for them, but what are your views on this balance of, you know, getting, like you said, like getting the healing, right? People are here for the healing or for, um, you know, treating all the societal problems that we have. You know, there's trauma, there's mental illness. So I, I, we could go on and on. But, you know, there is this desire for healing and growth and, and um, you know, coming back and finding that connectedness. And then there's kind of the, the people that are just like, okay, more, 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 more. You know, it's the same problem that caused all the problems in the first place. But how do we bring this into balance? And what are your views on, you know, the rising popularity of all these medicines? Like, is this a good thing? Is this going to be um like another thing that we all self-destruct or yeah what are your views on that yeah now i'm remembering your 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 question about sustainable harvesting um Mm. i think and i'm glad you mentioned like uh 
synthetic psychedelics or second generation psychedelics because I think people try to divorce that from the conversation somehow by it's like I don't need to worry about it because I'm not not working with the the plants um unfortunately uh, or fortunately every everything is sourced from nature no matter what it is even if it's synthetic um and so the destruction of of biodiversity is going to affect the those those sources as well uh and psychedelic science and psychedelic medicine as we know it is directly connected to indigenous use of psychedelic plants because you know humphrey osman and abram hoffer and and the people that coined the term psychedelic were sitting with the native american church in teepees and 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 going through you know medicine ceremonies and so it's kind of impossible to to separate there's a direct continuity there and that's definitely a uh, something that I can speak for Chakruna in, in saying, as far as like Chakruna's opinion on, on the good versus bad um, of this rising popularity, I think that's kind of Chakruna's trying to be a compassionate and well-informed space for gathering writing from experts in the field, from indigenous people, from marginalized people. And bring it all into the conversation, and I don't know if I can say Chakuna's stance, uh, but for myself and for Erie, it's important to like recognize the confirmation bias and like the, the idea, like oh well, actually, it's not so bad. There's there's actually lots of it, it's actually sustainable. So that over harvesting stuff is just like doom uh, mongering or something. Um, I, I know that's not what you're what you're saying and and probably that's an exaggeration of of what people's perspectives are but I think that that gives me like a clue that maybe there's something more to the story and I think if you look at I mean just from working with indigenous communities it's really impossible to ignore the 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 fact that um the poverty levels are still um, abysmal even alongside these these um, successful ventures and the rising popularity of this uh, field and I think it's it's I love that people are coming up with sustainable ways to to grow a, to source um, ayahuasca vines or or you know whether that's like growing from clones in Hawaii or like having your own gardens and sources of of different things i think those are at the moment those are very small drops in a large ocean which is mostly a story of unsustainable over harvesting um like you said ayahuasca vines grow very very far up tall canopy trees and indigenous people traditionally a lot of the harvesting practice was like dangerous climbing up a tree cutting a very specific section now people just cut a whole tree down take the whole vine from root to tip ship it into the tourist centers whoever paid them to do that is not obviously living in that community but then again there are communities who are selling their ayahuasca because it's so valuable because they're trying to survive and they're under increasing pressure and like um, not, you know, Erie isn't isn't interested in propagating this myth about indigenous people as like perfect conservationists versus, uh, you know, whatever other stereotype 
they're not they're they're all like the other part besides relationship involved in Erie is autonomy or, or agency and that is like the most important thing to con- that we can contribute to for indigenous communities and local people then they'll make their own decisions but they'll be in a more empowered position so they can decide what kind of relationships they want to have with extractive industries and unfortunately they still have to work with them and in the modern context that's like everything is about the relationships with these outside authorities whether that's like conservation um you know biosphere reserve authorities national park authorities government authorities or businesses that are trying to source cheap labor or cheap resources and they're all it's it's just like the the fabric of the economy there's not really like nuance much nuance to it it's just like unfortunate uh, unfortunately that's just the reality and i think it would be a little naive to to try to frame it in a in some sort of positive way that it tries to indicate that like it's really not so bad i think uh from what i've seen there's just a, a lot of people experiencing the effects of this very very extreme growth in this in this like ayahuasca tourism in in this plant medicine tourism it's really hard to overstate how much it's grown in just the past decade especially in the past few years um and that has a huge effect if if it was something else i mean in the past it's been other things it's been herbal medicines or rubber or or every every story of of from colonialism um it's the same thing happening now it's just in a in a slightly more even sometimes worse because it's where we have better technology and the extraction can happen at a more extreme uh rate but um i think it's 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 tricky because like a lot a lot of people are finding ways to to get income from this industry as well so it's not all all negative but it's just even those positive things are usually restricted to like a very small family or shaman or specific group that has that notoriety or that recognition from the psychedelic community so there's only a handful of of, of indigenous um people names that most most psychedelic enthusiasts probably can name and it's because they are known for using those psychedelic plants and then everyone else is left out and eerie includes both so we have groups that nobody has heard of um in the psychedelic space or not very many and they might not be as associated with psychedelic plants and then we have groups that are very closely tied so we work with um ashaninka and shipibo communities as well as you know huichol and, and mazatec and many many others um who might not be known in the space and so they they just won't get that special treatment um so that's another reason why Erie is, is a is a pool of funds that's evenly distributed to all to all 20 organizations and it, it's not trying to create this competitive atmosphere of, of people vying for attention and and recognition um but primarily it's about giving them giving these communities the the most autonomy and agency that we can and reducing the pressures on them so then they can they can decide how to move forward with their approach to conservation with their approach to sustainable harvesting and uh that's really the key so it's like if they decide to 
harvest in a, in a way that you might think is unsustainable, it's because they they had some some priority of survival that needed to be met. Um, but it's if if a business from the outside or somebody who runs a, tour, a, a retreat center does it, their decisions are based on a different set of of incentives, and more likely it's going to be, um, I think, in a, in a negative direction, um, just because that's, I mean, like we said, it's just about, it's about the incentives that the system creates, and it's really hard to get around those as much as you might have the good intentions, um, but yeah and a lot of the the issues around peyote for example they come from land use and like the destruction of habitat for you know creating a a new development where whether that's like a strip mall or or a, a business or a, or a, a residential area or whatever and you know, it's not necessarily people over harvesting peyote, although that happens too. And there's poaching and there's all, all that's always an issue, but it's like the destruction of the habitat is happening at such a, a huge rate. I mean, uh, on a huge scale. And this also goes for in the Amazon where, where other plant medicines come from in all forests and you can set up, you can do a nursery and a reforestation project, but the, that deforestation is still happening so so much that you really have to address that um, if you want to do anything. And um, I think Erie tries to tries to focus more on that than than specific um, specific plant medicine like sourcing. This is great. It's it's really helpful to know. I have I have so many questions about like, well, I've heard this and I've heard that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've gotten the feedback from people that they believe like all this medicine should just be free. Um, that's one I've heard a lot and it's just over the years, you know, like, well, it comes from the earth and it should just be free for everybody. Um, yeah. I'm curious well, what you I think mean, of I that. I think all medicine should be free. I, I, yeah, uh, all medicine. I don't think medicine should be a profit-driven <clears throat> industry, but uh, I think cost um, comes in different forms, and all things have a cost, and that's different than the cost that it, of a you know pay, paying for something with money, mm-hmm. and that is the cost that we're all alienated from by being disconnected from the source of our food and medicine and from ourselves and our communities. And so that's what INI and reciprocity is, is addressing is the fact that everything costs something. It costs energy. It costs time. It costs some, um, exertion by somebody else gave you what you, what you're eating, what you're healing yourself with. Um, and that cost is hidden and, 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 uh, you know, separated from you as much as possible so that you're not aware of it so that you don't understand the system that you're in and the relationships that you are living by. And I think that's what's really important to to understand. And, and if cost is conflated with like monetary price, then uh, I would agree all that medicine should be free. Um, but I I have to also say nothing is free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, I would like to see like... 
I think it's wonderful that that people are more aware, having more access, uh, having better information about psychedelics and psychedelic plants and medicines, and they're being applied in so many amazing ways. Um, I, I there is like a cynical part of me that sees it as like as the uh, you know brave new world. This is like the the way that people are going to be. Um, able to get through increased levels of of exploitation and alienation is by having these medicines that allow you to like not not just give up uh you know treating ptsd for example i'm sure that that there are um some people that see that as like the the solution to sustaining forever wars and and having not really solving by like not starting wars and not be starting armed conflicts and instead we can just have a very very uh effective way to treat the 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 symptoms of that and it'll just keep going and and it'll be endorsed by the state because it's like hey look we're gonna let you play around with these things and they're gonna help you in your psychological healing and your ability to cope with the dystopia that we've created and so it's like that's obviously I, I don't I'm not like uh, thrilled about that um, possibility. No, I, I, I actually brought that up with Charles Eisenstein. I said, well, you know, we can treat all this depression, PTSD and anxiety. But what about the root of all the depression, PTSD and anxiety, which is actually the bigger problem? And it's it comes back to all the systems being completely broken. Yeah. Um, you know, in the end, it's it's like even the the whole cost, like I, you know, on some level, excuse me, when people say to me, you know, um, ayahuasca should just be free or mushrooms should be free or all of this, like, but then I'm like, well, let's see. Um, You know, the person I work with is based in the middle of nowhere in Peru and, you know, he has to, he has a a team of people who help him make the medicine. The medicine is, you know, if you've never seen medicine being made, it takes a lot of labor. There's a lot of human labor involved. They pound it all by hand and then they cook it down and then they have to, eventually bring it onto a plane and come to America and serve it to, you know, like, and it, I'm like, well, none of that is free in our real 3d world that we live in right now. And the workers, like you said, it's like, I've been to these communities and I'm like, indigenous people are the, the places I've been. I'm sure maybe you've been to different places, but they're not necessarily like living off the land. They still have, um, you know, things to buy and there's still houses and there's still yeah. gasoline. And mm-hmm. as someone put it, as I donated to someone's um, Sundance a few years ago, they said, look, tobacco doesn't put gas in their tanks. Yeah. And we would all love to donate the tobacco that I grew in my garden. But, you know, that's like there's there's a real um <laughs> you know, there, there's a reality to the world we live in. And um, yeah, like I don't agree with majority of the reality, but then it's like, well, we have to work within this reality right now to create the new reality, which hopefully we'll see in our lifetime. It's, it's never ending. The work is, is uh, something we have to engage with uh, all the time. And um, yeah, I, it's the, the, sort of like romantic idea that people have about living off the land. Um, I mean, when it's applied to indigenous communities, it's important to also remember that their land has availability has shrunk so much that 
you know, the community that I spent time with during graduate school, the Inesha, they, um, uh, they used to have like 700 cultivars of this, of the manioc or cassava, um, root, which they call yucca. And now they have like four and they're, they don't even have the indigenous names for them anymore. They're just, um, they just know the Spanish names and maybe like one or two people know the old, the old names. And maintaining all these different idiosyncratic little varieties of something requires a lot of time and land availability and now they have to use whatever land they have left for for growing things to grow coffee that's the the best cash crop that's what keeps people going and then even that's not enough they have to sell their labor to other landowners and work away for a wage and that's most indigenous communities up until the past few decades have been, you know, living by wage labor. Now there's a new field of cultural tourism. And so they can sell that, that as another way of, of creating an income. And sometimes that isn't always, I mean, it, it doesn't mean it's a cynical thing. It's like they really are revitalizing their culture and, creating incentives for the youth to learn about their culture and stay in the community instead of leave to go to the city or whatever um, because there's a way of, of getting income by embracing your cultural identity rather than trying to get away from it because of discrimination and all the other pro- reasons, good reasons why people have you know left behind a lot of their, their cultural identity. Um, now there are possibilities and ways of of living that allow allow that to to not happen in in the same degree but it's also it's just subject to all the same um, inequalities and imbalances that come with any industry in this global capitalist economy and so the it's uh yeah it's like living off the land if those if those uh people who are who are laboring to harvest and and prepare and process the the plants that will eventually end up at a retreat center i i'm sure that they're not really seeing an equitable like distribution of the profits that are made because they do charge a lot at those centers uh and i and i'm and it's probably a lot of them are probably better than other industries that that pay sense to their to their laborers for for whatever they're producing in the u.s or i mean or or importing into the u.s uh and i i think i would love to see that keep happening that that gap shrink and like the people at the very lowest level the ground level who are supporting all of it getting a a bigger share um i think for some people they they see like, well, I need the, I need this cheap labor. So if you give them too big of a share, then they won't need to do sell their labor uh, that same way anymore. And now my business model is broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's. Uh, but to get back to the question about about money, like I people say that, that this medicine should be free. Healing should be free. I agree. Um but when it comes to paying and having access to, to medical care, but, but then that requires that everyone is being equitably comp- compensated at every level. And that 
comes hand in hand with the medicine being free. And so if those two things happened, perfect, we can have free medicine for everyone uh, and free food and shelter and, and all the things that we need. Um, that requires a, a huge systemic change. Uh, and I think it's something that I'm not sure how to approach that. That's one, that's more of a political question. And like, I, I think Erie is restricted and limited by the way it, it operates within the nonprofit space. It relies on, um, philanthropy and, and just individual people have, being generous. And, and that's not the way that it needs to happen, but that's the way that I could, I could imagine an immediate way to, to do something good that is impactful, that is based around principles and, and a model and design that, that will hopefully strengthen over time and create something that's organic and can, can continue. Um, and eventually when those other things change, hopefully, um, you won't need Erie anymore. We won't need, uh, nonprofits. Uh, but, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Yeah, it's like we got to start somewhere. Um, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, well, one more minute. So just one last question. If there's one thing that, let's say, listeners want to do, um, because there is that sense of like, what can I do? How can I contribute? You know, um, what change can I make within myself to maybe do my little part to affect the bigger change that we all want to see? you know, what's one thing you would suggest or a couple of things, if you can think of any? I mean, I would suggest joining Tracuna's newsletter and staying in tune with everything Tracuna does. Um, I think if you're looking for a place to, to donate, I think Tracuna and, and for me, the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative, if depending on what, what you want that donation to go towards, um, I think it's it's a unique way to to just create like a one a unified pathway to try to address this like fundamental issue and and address you know conservation of biodiversity of plant medicines of indigenous communities um and also trying to heal that separation and and alienation which kind of is at the root of a lot of a lot of these things we've been talking about uh i think in like your personal life i mean you asked about like um going like encouraging or discouraging people from using plant medicines or go traveling to indigenous um areas and communities and i don't want to discourage people from doing that but i do think that it's not necessary um there the, the, there's there are ways to connect with the place where you are with the land that you're on it's there's there's an indigenous name for it there is uh there are communities indigenous people uh where you are there is an environment and an and a habitat there that you can connect with and you can learn about and you can learn about the different communities of plants and animals and other organisms that live around you and you can start to connect with those ecological relationships and of course like healing the relationship that you have with yourself and with your immediate community, I think is like the most important thing. Uh, and that happens through daily practice. It's not like a decision that you make. Um, and you know, it can involve the plants on your windowsill or on the street outside of your house uh, or, or wherever. Um, and just getting involved with those local 
movements and local conservation initiatives and local um, food security, biodiversity. There's something going on around you, and if there's not, then you should you should start it. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I think everybody has limited time. Everyone is trying to survive, um, and so you know, in some sense, just surviving and taking care of yourself. For some people, that's that's the most they can do. But if you have a little spare income and you want to donate to something, I think that Erie is a good place to, to start. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Joseph. It was such an honor to talk to you and hear about all this. And we will have uh, the links to Erie and Shakruna and all these resources you mentioned here in this interview right here in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time and, and especially the work that you're doing at Shakruna with you and everybody there in that amazing organization. Thank you. Thank you so much, Beth. It was it was a pleasure to talk to you and, and to be able to, to share about all these things um, that are close to my heart and yours as well, I know. So mm. thank you. Very much. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times.